But this is a true story. And uh, some of you know him, some of you don't. So it's a typical, um, uh, like, like pulling yourself up by the bootstraps kind of story where there's a hardworking family. They're, 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 they, they came up from poverty and they just, they worked hard and they dedicated themselves to, to the Lord and to, to family values. And, uh, and they became the newly rich. Like they, they got that dream and they saw the fulfillment you know, say of the American dream, right? The, the, the white picket fence and the two cars and just everything that, that we desire and we want. And like this family did it. And this was one of, again, we know these people. Maybe it's you. But we know these families that, you know, for the very first time in their family's generation, they send a kid to college. They've got this and, you know, they, they got a bunch of kids. They're able to send all of their kids because God so blessed them in their business and they work hard. They worked hard and they persevered. And so, but they got the one kid that is bright. And so, um, when you send your, your, the first of your family to college and you have the bright one, uh, what do you send them to study? <laughs> business. That's right. It's either they become a doctor or a lawyer or they get their MBA. This is what smart parents do. They, they, don't, uh, they don't send their kids to um, get a major in poetry. Right? <laughs> they just don't. But so they had this, this family had this bright kid. They send him off to law school. And he's gifted. He's so smart. Send him off to law school. And halfway through law school... He does what Bill Gates did. He does what Zuckerberg did. He drops out, and he goes home, and he tells his hard-working father that sacrificed so much to get that kid into college. Blood, sweat, and tears, years of 15-hour days, all this kind of stuff. And the kid comes home and says, Dad, I'm dropping out of college. I want to pursue my dreams. Like this law stuff, it has no meaning for me deep down inside. There's no purpose for my life deep down inside. I have ideas, of, I, have a, I have better ideas. I have, I have this glorious idea. And so this kid drops out of college. And yet you think, the natural thought is to think, oh, he's just going to blow it. He's just going to fail. It's going to be a train wreck. He's going to wreck his life. He's going to embarrass his family. But that's not what happens. This individual literally becomes a rock star. He becomes the best-selling author of all time. There are posters of this guy's face in every house. He leverages technology to get his message and to communicate what he wants to say. He uses technology in, in an amazing way for the first time in history. And he changed the world. His idea, his concept literally changed the world and actually, we wouldn't be even sitting in, in this room if it wasn't for this guy. So let's, let's, let's bring up his picture. Okay, raise your hand if you know who he is. A few of you. We've got some work to do, folks. A few of you. Okay, let's, 
Um, let's take a look at the other picture. You know who that guy is? Raise your hand if you know who this guy is. Everybody knows who this guy is, and rightfully so. We should know who he is because he is an American icon. He changed our country for the better. He introduced this idea of peaceful protest, and he was a godly man, a God-fearing man. And that came first. That's, that was the number one thing in his life. That's why his movement succeeded, and what we're doing right now in our protesting is failing. It's because God is not first. All right, let's go back to the other guy. Go back to the fat white guy. There he is. You, you figure out who he is? It's my wife's old boyfriend. <laughs> this is Martin Luther. The other guy was Martin Luther King Jr. In the 1930s, Martin Luther Sr. goes to Germany. Yet his name is not Martin Luther. His name is Michael King. And this young black preacher goes to Germany and gets exposed to the teachings of this white Martin Luther. They don't teach you this in school, do they? Nope. He was so impressed by his theology and his gospel of grace and his philosophy of nonviolent protest. He was so impressed, this young black preacher, that he literally changed his name to Martin Luther. And then he tells his kids, guess what? Your name's going to be Martin Luther too, whether you like it or not. It's an amazing story, isn't it? So why did Martin Luther... Well, why, first of all, why is it that 90% uh, of our church doesn't know who the most important man in the world at this time was? We're going, this is October... 2017, this is the 500-year anniversary of Martin Luther, who started the Protestant Reformation. Whether you realize it or not, we are a Protestant church. We're different than the Catholic church. We're a Protestant church. Everything that Martin Luther did bled down into what we are doing now. The, 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 he, he influenced so many people in a short amount of time, that they, they changed the world. The reason why the Puritans got on a boat with, at risk of death to start a new Christian community in this country is because they were motivated by Martin Luther's bravery and courage to stand up for the word of God and to stand up for truth. We are sitting in this room because of the white fat man. Let's go to the next picture. Next picture. There we go. Does anybody know what this is? Let's go to the next picture. You know what that is? That's where St. That's where Peter is buried. His body is underneath that. Easy up. <laughs> and down there are little tiny people. And let's go to the next picture. You know what that is, right? Raise your hand if you know what this is. 
Yeah, this is the Vatican. That's St. Peter's Cathedral. St. Peter's Cathedral was built 500 years ago. The Pope and the Cardinals had this great idea, and actually, I think it's a great idea. I think they needed to do it. They, were, they had this passion and this drive to build something great for God. 500 years ago, when you drive into, in your, in your, I don't know, on your horse or whatever, you go into a city, you go into a town, what's the highest building in the city or the town? The church building is the highest building in the culture. We go into a city, we go into a town, in our culture, what's the highest building? Governments, hotels, banks. Centers of finances, Trump Tower, those are the highest buildings. And what does that say? We've got to get this. What does that say about what we value as a society? It says what we value is materialism over spirituality. Now, you guys don't. Of course, you guys are awesome. But all those people out there, that's what they value. So this is the landscape. This is the cultural and the spiritual landscape. They had different values than we did. Yet there was a problem. It's a really cool building. Has anybody actually been into St. Peter's? I haven't. Okay, what was the experience like when you went into St. Peter's? It's huge. What were what's some other words about experiencing St. Peter's Cathedral? Anybody? Magnificent. Larger than life. First service, it was breathtaking. It just, it just, it was an awe of it. Just sucked the, sucked the oxygen right out of my lungs. So blown away by it. It's almost like you have a, it's almost like as if the architecture itself gives you a religious experience. But here's the issue. Um, they had to finance this thing. So they had a great idea, but they had to finance it. And it was expensive. And guess how they did it? They did it through a very unique uh, method of fundraising. And it was called indulgences. You would get a, a big, uh, get a really fancy piece of paper with a papal seal on it, or the cardinal seal on it, and you could buy this piece of paper. And when you bought this paper, you would have your sins forgiven. Right? It's a... That's kind of strange, isn't it? You buy a piece of paper, then you get your sins absolved. They go away. And I, hopefully, that you, you know, that that's just not how things work. And by the way, the Catholic Church knows that too. Uh, they're our friends. They're admitting that this was probably a bad decision. But I think in the back of their minds, they're like, yeah, but we have a really cool cathedral. <laughs> so the end justifies the means. So they would sell these indulgences for the forgiveness of sins because people 500 years ago, they're just like us. They do bad things, and then they feel guilty about it, and then so they buy an indulgence, and it alleviates their sin. Uh, here's another thing they did. There's different tiers of indulgences. Let's just say you're going to go to Las Vegas this weekend. So unless you're going to a really cool show in Las Vegas, usually you go to Las Vegas for other reasons. 
if you go to Las Vegas at a bachelor's party, chances are somebody's going to sin, <laughs> right? Chances are, that's that, like if you don't know that, if you're that daft thinking, I'm just going to go to Las Vegas and no sin is going to take place, well then, it's just, come on, wake up. Let's just be honest, let's be real. That's why you go. That's why it's called Sin City. Wouldn't it be awesome if you could just take care of that sin before you went? Well, guess what, folks? You can. You can have your sin absolved before you even go. I'm going to Las Vegas, so let's just take care of this forgiveness thing first, and I'm going to buy this piece of paper, and I'm going to have my uh, sin that I will commit forgiven before I actually do it. Not a bad racket, right? And then it gets even more complicated. Because there's always, in any congregation, there's always the perfect ones. The ones that would not go to Las Vegas. The ones that are faithful to going to church every Sunday. The ones that do tithe. The ones that do serve. They're perfect. They're so annoying. But they're perfect, right? They've got it all together. They don't say bad words. They're just they're the, they're the ideal Christian. They don't sin. So how in the world are you going to dig some money out of their pocket if they're not sinning? They're not, they don't need to buy an indulgence, right? I have an idea. Aunt Marge was a sinner. And if you really were a good Christian, if you really did love people, and if you loved your Aunt Marge, who is now in hell or purgatory, you can pay to get her out with an indulgence. <laughs> Such guilt, right? Such pressure. Man, if I really was a good Christian, then I would, I would do whatever it takes to get my, my loved one out of hell. And this is how they financed the cathedral. And so Martin Luther, he is living and alive when the construction of this building takes place. And as he's ministering to church, he, he doesn't become a rock star. He becomes a priest, okay? So that, that part I made up a little bit. But he literally becomes a celebrity. He's Europe's first celebrity. Do you know that? It's cool. Anyway, um, so Martin Luther uh, left law school because he had an encounter with God in the woods. I would love to have been there for that one. But it rattled his cage so much he was so undone by the presence of God that he left everything behind and took a vow of poverty. Like, it's estimated, like, he sold, like, he was the best-selling author of all time. And he never took a penny from the printers. Strange. So Martin Luther has this, he has this religious experience. He goes into a monastery, and he is one of these uh, religious people that is, they're just twisted and tormented and guilt-ridden and he's, they're always living in a level of shame and he, like, I'm sure he had daddy issues too so he just had this stuff with God that was just driving him insane and he was constantly un, in fear and shame and torment and yet he's a priest he felt like 
He was a sinner, yet he's completely dedicating his life to the work of God and to people. We do know before he had his major revelation in the Bible that he served people. Like he loved his congregation. He served them diligently. Uh, what practice that we don't do here, but the Catholic Church still does, I'm not bashing it at all. I think it's actually necessary and good. We just have a different way that we do it. Um, like if you, uh, if, 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 you, if you live a life where you're just hiding things, if you're not transparent with people and if you're not in the body of Christ, uh, the Bible tells us that we are to confess our sins to one another. Not, that, not so that they can be forgiven. We confess our sins to one another to build in an accountability and to continue to grow and to mature in Christ. You, you've got to have it. So what Martin Luther did, he was, you know, they confessed their sins to him. And one day, somebody walks in and says, look, I've already, uh, I guess I don't need to confess my sins because I just paid this indulgence. And they're all forgiven. And the ones that I'm going to commit next week, they're forgiven too. And Martin Luther comes unhinged. Like he just loses it. He was notorious for being grumpy and stubborn and bombastic and smart and speaking his mind. He's also known for being a potty mouth. Like I can't even tell you some of the stuff that he said. It's pretty funny though. It's pretty funny. <laughs> pretty funny stuff. Like this guy had a sharp wit. And he nails his 95 arguments, called the 95 Thesis. He nails it on the wall, and he says, this is not right. You can't buy God. You cannot buy his favor. You can't even earn his favor. He says, there's something completely wrong with this. And then he begins this spiritual journey. He takes this risk. He takes this, this, this challenge against the largest organization in the world. The church owned 50% of the property in Europe at this time. They had power that we just don't understand. And Luther was not the first reformer. He was not the first to protest. A few hundred years before him, John Huss tried to say the same things, and they burned that dude to the stake for speaking up. And so he knows that his life is in danger, but he knows that there's something wrong. There's something wrong with the religion. There's something wrong with this system. There's something wrong when we begin to manipulate and to control people and to tell them that they need to be thinking a certain way and acting a certain way. And he definitely knew that there was something wrong when the system was not even in the Bible. Because paying off your sins, it ain't in the book. This is something that man has made up. And so he, he came up with this very strong statement. It's like, no, it has to be from the word of God. The, the, the scripture is the authority. The scripture is the authority. And if it doesn't line up with scripture, then it's just it's not God. And so this is what he, this is this, the risk that he takes. This is the nail that he pounds. And he was the man that God chose to do it. He's the guy that could, could, could get away with calling the Pope the Antichrist. <laughs> And they wanted to kill him, and they just didn't, they weren't able to get his hands on him. Now, he has this major revelation. So he takes this big risk in challenging the authority. He becomes a 
Protestant, a protester. We're going to be looking at two verses. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 1, verse 17, and Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. So if you want to turn to those, they are important. All right. He's an Augustinian priest. He knows his Bible inside out. He's read this thing from cover to cover several times. Yet, the gospel never highlighted to him. Remember, he's a man that's tormented by his past. He is guilt-ridden. I have an interesting little note. Uh, I had the opportunity to hang out with non-church people this week like non-Christian people this week. It's actually refreshing. It's good for me to do so. It gives me a perspective. Um, interesting. Here's my, here's my sense. Like it was a drinking, pot-smoking, millennial mess, right? And no... They won't admit that their lifestyle is hurtful. They won't even acknowledge that it is sin because they're not hurting anybody. But when I was in that environment, oh my goodness. You could just tell that each and every single soul is in the pit. And they know it too. And they're just not being honest with themselves. Like they know they feel icky. They just won't admit it. When you're around them, you know. Because there's no hope. There's no joy. The laughter is perverse. Hmm? Maybe you know. Maybe it's you. Maybe this is you. Maybe I'm speaking to you today on this one. Uh, Jesus wants to raise us up out of the muck and the mire. He wants to wash all that filth off of us, whether you realize it or not. He's coming for you. He's going to set us free. It feels so good to get all that junk washed off. It is so freeing to get it all washed off. So some. My my point, my, my, my point is is that some people, specifically church people, they know when they sin. But then there's other people that they don't realize they're sinning, but they know something's wrong. Can I get an amen on that one? Am I right? Do I have a good pulse on the culture? Like, they just don't know that they're sinning, but they know that something is not right inside of them. That's what I'm going after. So this is what he reads. Again, the guy knows his book. He, he, and he knows Jesus. He knows the Lord. He's had the encounter. He is still this tormented, guilt-ridden Christian that's depressed and sad and bored. Yeah? And he reads this mess. No, that's not a mess. This is glory. He reads this that undoes him for the first time. It might take a couple weeks for us to really understand it. 
Romans chapter 1, verse 17. For in the gospel, a righteousness which God ascribes is revealed, both springing from faith and leading to faith, disclosed through the way of faith that arouses to more faith. Exponential faith here. You're in process. As it is written, the man who through faith is just and upright shall live and shall live by faith. So my, uh, my translation here is uh, it's a little wordy because it's, very, it's really trying to describe what Luther knew. But the short answer here is, is the just shall live by faith, the righteous shall live by faith. If you were here for our faith series last month, you understand the idea that we need to be walking in faith. There's an activation that takes place when we walk in faith. It, like, God really likes people of faith. He likes you. He's in love with you. He's fascinated by you. You are the object of his affection. Yet when you activate your faith, when you choose to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, Man, God, he just, this, that exponential faith takes place. If you've got a little bit, he's going to give you more faith. Because faith is also a gift. It's our choice, but it's also a gift. And we get more faith. It's an amazing thing. But now we're moving into some different territory here. Now we're moving into the glorious lifestyle that God's called us all to live in. You've heard this term before because it's being popularized by Tony Robbins and Oprah and all the book club of the month stuff. You've heard this term. I'm not bashing it because I think it's good. It's healthy. We need to get it inside of us. But if you heard this, you need to become the best version of you. You heard this? What is the best version of you? Right? Definitely the version of me right now, Right? Now, you see, the best version of you is the one that's got it all together. It's what you're really supposed to be. You know, you got, you got the best body that you could possibly have. You got the best mind that you possibly have. You know, everything's working out just fine. And so this is the quest that our culture has. Okay, I need to become the best version of, of me, my full potential. How do I reach my full potential? Don't you want that? I want that. I'm not bashing these guys because they're actually onto something very important to who we are as a species. We do need to become the very best version of us. See, the Bible has a word for that too. The Bible's been talking about this for a very long time. And that word, again, we read it over and over and over again. It means absolutely nothing to us because it's just, it's fallen into the, the religious jargon that no one understands. But here is what the definition of the best version of you is from the Bible. It is called righteousness. Righteousness. Right standing with God. Or in other words, what is God's vision and will for your life? What is God's vision and will for your life? He has in mind, in his divine mind, he has the very best version of you planned out in advance before the beginning of time. What? I just got like chills down my spine from just saying that just now. He has in his divine mind the very best version for you planned. And it's going to blow your mind. And God wants us to discover it. 
Martin Luther, 500 years ago, asked a very important philosophical question that everybody asks. He asks, am I a good person? Just close your eyes, ask yourself that question right now. Am I a good person? Am I a good person? Some of you are answering that question. Some of you can't answer that question. Some people are saying, I guess I'm okay. Your secular neighbors actually believe that they're good people. But you know that you're not. You know that you're not quite right. You know you're a little broken. And so, if we're all honest with ourselves, when we ask this question, am I a good person? We know the truth is no. So, suck it up and work harder. Be better. Do more. You're not giving enough. You're not serving enough. If you gave more of your time and more of your money... then you would be a better person. And I just duped all of you because that's not true. You don't have the better person inside of you. God has that better person inside of him. Here's the idea. You cannot earn it. You cannot gain it. You cannot do anything to achieve this righteousness, this my best version of myself. You can't do it. And this is what Luther gets for the very first time. This is why he was so tormented his entire life as a Christian, trying to be something that he couldn't achieve. Always working, always feeling guilty, always beating himself, always calling himself you know, an idiot. He called himself a bag of maggots. Among other things that we can't repeat here in church. The revelation that he has that changes this world is this idea of grace, this idea of becoming the best person of who you are, righteousness, in right standing with God, means that it comes from without. It is not our righteousness that we receive. It is the righteousness from Jesus that is the divine gift that we get. Your righteousness is stinking rags. God's righteousness is glorious, and he gives it to you, and he gives it to me. And it is a free gift of God. Righteousness is a free gift of God. Right, let me read you the other one that changed the world. There were, I mean, it's all here. It's all just standing right here, right in front of us. This good news message, this gospel of grace. We just read around it all the time. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For it is by free grace... God's unmerited favor that you are saved, delivered from judgment, and made partakers of Christ's salvation through your faith. And this salvation is not of yourselves, of your own doing. It came not through your own striving, but it is the gift of God. Did you guys catch that? Not because of works, not the fulfillment of the law, 
lest any man should boast. It is not the result of what anyone can possibly do, so no one can take pride in himself in it or take glory for himself, for we are God's own handiwork, his craftsmanship, his masterpieces. We are the art. We are the art. You've heard it said that the church is a hospital full of sick people. True. But it's also a museum full of saints that God has painted. We are his masterpiece. Created in Christ, born new, that we may do those good works which God predestined, planned beforehand for us, taking the path which he prepared ahead of time, that we would walk in them, living the good life with which, we has, which he has prepared and made ready for us to live, to live the good life, the best version of ourselves. What is this saying? What is Paul saying to us? What did Luther finally get for the very first time after reading it a million times? He realized that it is only by God's grace that we are saved. It's his work, not ours. It's his work on the cross that does it. Now, here's the nuance. This is what we got to get. This is difficult for me because I'm a free will guy. I'm not a, I'm a big free will guy. So here's my problem because I chose God. Or did I? God chose me. God chose you. I respond with my free will in faith, right? You guys see that? This is what we talked about the last month. I respond with my faith. God gives me for, more faith, empowering faith. We get the gift of faith. But there's something inside of each soul that has to choose. I'm going to stick to my guns on that. Here's where I could easily, maybe you too, and this is where we fall down the slippery slope. Was it my decision to choose God that saved me? Nope. If you read that, if you paid attention to that scripture that I just read, it's God's grace that saves us. In short, faith doesn't save you, it's God's grace that saves you. So that no man could boast, well, God, I chose you, so therefore you owe me. God, I gave an indulgence, so therefore you owe me. God, I served at the food bank, so therefore you're required to bless me. It's all the same thing, it's the slippery slope. This is why grace changes everything. Grace empowers. Grace comes from the outside and it comes in. Grace gives you that best version of yourself. You don't get it, you don't earn it, you don't create it, you get it as a gift. Grace, this revelation of grace that says, no, it is it doesn't, grace doesn't make sense. Grace definitely is not fair. So for those of you that have high levels of justice and you want justice in your religious life, grace is going to be a difficult mountain for you to climb because grace is not fair. Like if Hitler accepted the Lord on his deathbed and believed in his heart and confessed with his mouth, he's in heaven, folks. That ain't fair. But this is the God that we serve. This is the God that a religious person discovered. 
And what it did to him in his life, not only did it change everything in his life, it changed the world. We're, we're, we're still picking the fruit from this grace thing. He was grumpy. He was angry. He was bombastic. He was guilt-ridden. He was depressed. He was sad. But once he read those two verses, once he realized that there was nothing that he could do to earn God's love, earn God's favor, once he realized that everything was a gift, that it was not his righteousness, it was the righteousness that came out of heaven that gets inside of him, once he realized that, you know what he says about the gospel? I don't know, what do you say about the gospel? What say you? This is what Luther says about the gospel after he has this revelation. He says, the gospel is nothing less than pure joy and laughter. So it took this depressed, grumpy, cranky old man well, he wasn't old. He was four. He was my age. He took this cranky old, the cranky guy and made him laugh. The gospel message, this scandalous gospel message, it's too good to be true. It is crazy. It's too good to be true. We don't deserve any of this stuff. And once we get it, it should make you happy, giggly, joyful. Oh, my gosh, are you kidding me? I get to go to heaven and I didn't do anything to deserve it? Oh my gosh. It made Martin Luther laugh and tell jokes. It made him get married and enjoy that fullness of, he actually married a nun. Isn't that cool? <laughs> you guys thought that was funny. I think it's funny. I get the band to come to the front as they're on their way up. Here's the thing. Here's the, here's the application. Here's the take home. Here's just what we, okay. Um, you got to do a little bit of this and you got to do a little bit of, the, the, of that. Meaning that um, Martin Luther was committed to doing a little bit of soul searching, obviously, right? But you want to know what his strength was? He kept on saying over and over again, he says, we need to turn our eyes from our inward selves and start looking out to our outward selves. This was some part of a key to his, his success. This is why God used him, because he saw others. So he just, he like, the introspection thing is okay. It, it, no, introspection is bad. You don't want introspection. You need a little self-reflectiveness. Like, you need to know what your motivations are, what your desires are, if you're trying to buy off God, if you're trying to manipulate people, if you're trying to control you need to know these things about yourself, but more importantly, you need to turn your attention away from yourself and onto your brothers and sisters. You need to be able to build a community around yourself, friends and family that you trust that you can actually confess your sins to. Not that they can forgive you of your sins, only Jesus can do that, but you confess your sins to one another like the Bible says and you begin to, begin to build in accountability and grow maturity. Don't you want that? That's part of the, becoming the best version of who you need to be. Confess your sins to one another because it's healthy for you. So as you're on your way, maybe write this down. What are you going to do this week? Well, you need, to, you need to ask the Lord in your prayer time. Do I have a religious spirit in me? Let me break that down. Am I a control freak? Now, wanting to be in control isn't necessarily a bad thing, but wanting to control God, well, 
That one is. Just watch out for that slippery slope. Just ask yourself, God, in your prayer time, do I have a religious spirit in me? Am I, am I trying to control? Am I trying to manipulate? Do I want my will over your will? Am I being submissive to what you're doing in my life? So these are the things that we need to ask of ourselves. And then number two. Ask God to reveal his grace to you. It is by grace that we have been saved through faith. Like, you need to meditate on that scripture. It is by grace we have been saved through, through faith in Christ. And we'll be fleshing some more of this stuff out because, honestly, the grace of God there's so many facets to it. There's saving grace, empowering grace, uh, commissioning grace, designing grace. It's amazing how much kingdom we have access to. So write those things down. Ask those two questions and, and see what God does. And if you feel like you're not worthy you just need to let that lift off you in the name of Jesus. You are worthy of his love and his affection. You are worthy to worship in, his, in this church. You're worthy to be in fellowship with others. And you're not allowed to let the thoughts that say you cannot belong in. Everybody belongs in the body of Christ. Let's pray. Would you stand with me? If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you can pray this prayer. I'm gonna, I pray it often. Say, Heavenly Father, I just ask that I will begin to understand who Jesus is. And I allow his saving grace to come into my heart. As Romans 1 said, to become that new creation. God, I want to be made completely new. I want all the, the muck and the mire to wash off my soul. I want to be able to see color and technicolor. I want to be able to, to feel the joy of my salvation. I want to be able to laugh at, you, at the goodness of God and what he's done for me in my life. It is the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. He is a kind and good and loving God and he is decided to choose you before you ever possibly chose him. He chose you before you were even born, before you were a thought. He chose you. I just want to encourage you this morning, no matter where you're at, at your spiritual pilgrimage, to choose God and to surrender to his grace. I pray this in your name.